Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hey, it's Cindy, and I wanted to suggest this podcast I recently discovered called American Song Catcher with Nicholas Edward Williams. It's an independent audio documentary style podcast hosted by the folk musician and music history enthusiast. I'm very surprised to find out that Nicholas doesn't have like a journalistic background because the way that he delivers this podcast and these stories is truly profound and it just sucks you right in. Each episode has five stories, starting with one traditional song's journey to America, followed by the stories of four musicians and American roots, starting with the legends of the past going all the way to current artists of the day. You'll hear the stories behind the songs of immigrants from the British Isles in Europe who brought their tunes into the Appalachian Mountains to songs of the South, gospel, bluegrass, ragtime, blues, old-time country, and the folk music derived from it all. You can find American Songcatcher wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. And welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am your host, Cindy Howes. It is so wonderful to have you here today. And before we get into Aoife O'Donovan, got a couple of things to talk about. Number one, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to our website, basicfolk.com. You can make a contribution and financially support this independent podcast. We are listener supported. If you're already doing so, thank you so much. Another thing you can do while you're at the website is sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Basic Folk Pod. You can find everything at our website, basicfolk.com. Okay, today's a big day. It's our 150th episode of Basic Folk. Woo! Okay. Uh, For our 150th episode, we are so pleased to welcome Aoife O'Donovan to the pod. Aoife's new album, Age of Apathy, just came out. This is her third solo record after years of performing with her bands, I'm With Her, along with Sarah Watkins and Sarah Jarosz, Crooked Still, Sometimes Why, with Kristen Andreessen and Ruth Miranda, and The Wayfaring Strangers. She was born and raised in Newton, Massachusetts, and her dad, radio host and music champion Brian O'Donovan, moved to the U.S. US in 1980 from Ireland. Thanks to her music-loving parents, she and her siblings grew up in the Irish music party world in Boston. Aoife spent summers in Ireland and is very closely associated with the music, culture, and people there. The impact her heritage and the early environment of her life have had on her musicality cannot be understated. The role that Aoife has played in the folk and roots world has grown significantly over the years. From her appearances on Prairie 
Prairie Home Companion and Chris Thiele's Live From Here program. To her many appearances at Newport Folk Festival, she is a household name in many folk-oriented communities. On her latest album, she works with Joe Henry to incite a hypnotic groove throughout her beautifully written songs. There is so much to listen to and discover on this album. Aoife's been living in Orlando, Florida, where her husband is the artistic director and conductor for a few symphonies. She's actually turned into, like, the city's number one ambassador, and she talks about this and entertains my cosmically woo-woo questions about feminism, energy, and alcohol. Thanks so much to Eva O'Donovan for appearing on our 150th episode of Basic Folk. We're going to take a listen to a song from her latest album. Here's Phoenix, and then we'll get to our conversation with Eva O'Donovan on the 150th episode of Basic Folk. This is so exciting. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Cindy, for having me on this podcast. Um, I've got a lot of questions for you. Uh, so let's, we're, we're going to cover every single aspect and detail of your life. Oh, every single aspect and detail of my life. Okay, let me buckle mm-hmm. my seatbelt. Yep. You were born and raised in Newton, Massachusetts. Your dad, Brian O'Donovan, moved to the U.S. in 1980 and ended up staying there. Um, You spent summers in Ireland and are very closely associated with the music, culture, and people there. And there's kind of like this exotic mysticism about Ireland, and often people equate that mystic to your songs, like myself included. Um, But how do you feel about that, and do you see that like Irish enchantment influencing your music? Uh, I think that I, I do. I do see that association between the mysticism of Ireland and my music and, and my myself, you know, my, my deep inner self. I think that growing up in Boston uh, and kind of having this thing that we did every summer, we would go to Ireland every summer and and visit my dad's family. And my dad is a great storyteller. I, I, I just, you know, a lot of this stuff I kind of dealt with on my last record in the Magic Hour just kind of going back and sort of the turf cutter's donkey, these old Irish books, these, these storybooks of my childhood and just the fairy forts, the, the ghost stories, the, the scenery, the imagery, the landscape, uh, all of that is just so much a part of me, of who I am. And, um, and I'm sort of seeing that now kind of being passed on subliminally to my child. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's definitely there. You were growing up in the Irish music party party world in Boston, and I would assume that extended over to your summers in Ireland. Can you, like, set the scene for what that looked like as a kid? And also, like, what lessons from your childhood do you now apply to your role as a parent? Let's see. Those are kind of two two questions that 
Definitely relate. My the setting the scene. I mean, my parents are both musicians, and um, although you know they they met kind of through the, the music, they met at a music party, which is hilarious because that's exactly how I met my husband. Also mm-hmm. at a party where people were playing music, and they they are very social people, and they have kind of been stalwarts of the 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 music scene, really, not just the Irish music scene in Boston, but but really sort of you know their mainstays in that community in Boston and have been for my entire life. And that would kind of started as a child and they would host touring Irish bands at their house when we lived in, in Newton. Also, my parents lived in Dedham for a brief time. And I remember the parties in that tiny house on Hillside Road. Um, but yeah, great, great parties, great. And just sort of a love of, you know, conviviality and, and just sharing, sharing music, sharing food and sharing community. And that's definitely... I mean, that is definitely something that I'm, I'm trying to give to my daughter, although that's, you know, it's been a crazy half of her life has been essentially in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been really lucky that that we have been able to still have a lot of community, you know, here in Florida because we've been able to be outside, you know, and it's been it's just been so lucky that you can do stuff outside here that's safe. And she hasn't yet had the experience of like, you know, falling asleep to banjos and fiddle tunes just because we, we, we haven't really <laughs> we haven't had a party in two years. Yeah, it all sounds like positive experiences from your childhood that you're applying to your your family now. Definitely. Yeah, great. Um, you have said that you are obsessed with your family and um, Where from did I say, my where did observation. I say that? Oh, I think it was like a long time ago when you were still living in Massachusetts. I, I Is it, does that ring true? It totally does. I'm just like, did I say that in print somewhere? I love my family so much. Uh, I feel I, you know, I'm, I think I'm, I'm more conscious uh, as I get older that when I say that it's, it's maybe shocking to some people because I, I, I know that I'm very lucky that I have this relationship with my family. And, and I feel that, you know, we, we all work really hard at maintaining close relationships. My, I'm the oldest of four kids and uh, my parents, you know, we're just, I feel like we all put in a lot of effort to to be close and to mm. remain close. And I've seen that modeled by both of my parents who are very close with their siblings. My dad has eight siblings. He's one of nine kids and they have a weekly phone call. They're just, I mean, they're, they're, they really are all in very close touch. And my mom has only one brother, but, you know, he, they're very close. And, and I'm really close to all of my extended family as well, um, mm-hmm. which, again, it's just is a, is a rarity for sure. And the older I get, the more I realize how just how special it is. Also, your parents got engaged after three days. They did. Yeah. You'll have to. How did that, how did that happen? I, you'll have to ask them. You'll have to ask them. I I can't, (laughs) that's their story. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Um, your parents are extremely into music. Like you were talking, like you were talking about your mom, Lindsay is a great musician. Um, and your dad also plays, but he's known for being like a great musical connector with his radio show. How did their reverence and appreciation for music impact the way not only like you listen to music, but also the type of musician that you wanted to be? I think that they they, they were just so influential on me, first and foremost, by just exposing me and encouraging me, um, exposing me to so much music, to so many different styles of music, and also just really encouraging my musical interest while without really pushing it. I, I, I don't feel like, I mean, for better or for worse, I think that, you know, being married to somebody who's comes from the classical tradition, I think that there is an element of not regret that I have, but, but I'm sort of like, Oh, why didn't I push myself harder as a child, you know, to be better at the piano mm-hmm. or, 
you know, why, why don't I play violin or I don't know, those kinds of things. But, but that being said, I, I feel that they just turn me on to so much music and continue to. I mean, my dad is, is kind of, we're always kind of throwing stuff back and forth. My mom still, this is hilarious. She discovers probably more music than all of us because she's just listening to the radio all the time. She's listening to WERS or UMB literally every single day. And she'll call me and be like, I just heard Tedeschi Trucks. And she's like, no, I'm just listening to Tedeschi Trucks, Spotify on repeat all day. And I'm like, that's just not what I would have expected my mom to say. And the next day it'll be, um, Anna Eggie or Rose Cousins or, or Watch House. Or, I mean, she, she just, I just feel like she has this, she loves, she loves folk music and she loves kind of all, all of the elements of that too. I love that. Your mom's up to date on Watch House's name change. Oh, to- mandolin orange totally. To she, she, she really like, is. She's like, she's, she's like, oh, did you hear this person has a new record? Or I just heard this thing on, like, she's just a, you know, I think we forget when we aren't in our cars all the time or we're not, I feel like there's a, there's a generation of people who really do listen to the radio all the time. I mean, Cindy, you know this cause you're, this is your world, but like, I forget that, that that's a thing. That's that's a place where people discover music, and it's, I'm so grateful for it, for all the spins. Well, it's it's interesting, like, people of our generation, even though you and I are basically the same age, like, people who are our age and enjoy musical discovery, like, don't find the radio as a place for musical discovery because it's sort of just been, I don't know, that's just the way that the industry formed itself. Right. You know, it's, like, less about musical discovery and more about, like, playing songs between commercials. Right. And more, and, and there also, I feel like everything, we want everything to be so curated. Whereas, you know, they, like if you, if you, the, the way that like radio comes on after Spotify, if you're listening to an album, it'll kind of play stuff based on stuff it thinks you like, but the radio doesn't have an idea of what it thinks you like. And that's really, I feel like that's when you discover the coolest stuff is when, you, mm. you know, it's not necessarily the stuff that somebody thought you would like. One of your favorite parts of being a musician is collaborating with others. And um, I would imagine that seed was like first planted in your youth when you would see your family like connecting through music. Could you talk about your experience with like jamming and collaborating with other musicians? And like, what does it feel like for you? When did you first discover that feeling for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think that as a singer, kind of first and foremost, that 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 has been a part of my musical sense of identity since the very beginning, just singing harmony and collaborating by singing harmony and collaborating, you know, seeing my parents do it with their friends around the piano, my mom playing the piano and them singing like madrigals or, or McGarrickle's songs or, you know, Mm. Bob Dylan and Joan Baez or just the, the, that kind of stuff around the piano and like three, four part harmony and rounds and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that then, you know, applying that to my life as a musician, when I started Crooked Still and really have coming up in a band, I think has, is, was just so formative. And, um, I think now that I am a, you know, solo artist as well as a band member, um, there are different things in that. Like when you're, you know, when you're in a band, it's just like, it's all about the collaboration. It's all about each member kind of bringing, bringing their own kind of goods to the table and you, and you make something out of that. What does that like feel like for you? Like inside, like, does it feel like, you know, like you're at home, like that you belong, that like, I don't know. I, I, I really love the woo woo, like the universe is inside of you or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I guess that's not really like how I think about it. I don't, I mean, it's just, it's like it, it, I love, I just love making music with, with people. And I, but I, but I also, but I feel like there's, I don't know. I mean, yes, you can have those moments, but you can also have those moments. There's also like a sense of collaboration between when you're on stage by yourself, you're you and the audience, you know what I mean? Like it can be, mm-hmm. it can be 
anything. I feel like just making music in general is just, is like such a sacred thing. And then when you have these special moments, when you're collaborating with somebody or when you're, when you're making music with somebody, the like collaboration is just sort of has become that kind of like a catchphrase, but it really is always like, that's, that's what music is. It's just, it's like a collaboration between the musician and whatever elements are at, you know, at their fingertips at that time. Like, I don't think it necessarily has to be, I don't know. It's not, it's not like a thing. When you're on stage, like, it's interesting to think of like, it's, if you're solo, like it's a collaboration between you and the audience. And then it's also interesting to think about like collaborating with like different sides of yourself and also getting that feeling, drawing like a through line to your different selves. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think it's like, even if it's just you're singing and playing an instrument, but it's also just, just like it's whatever is happening in the world at that moment also will, will sort of make the performance different or make the experience different. And that's what, that's, what's so special about live Mm. music. Otherwise you would just like watch a YouTube video and it would be the same or listen to a recording. You know what I mean? Like, but that's why you go and play concerts every night is because it's different than it was the night before. Like, you know, you, you're, you're, whether or not you're in a band or by yourself or a member of something or leading something, it's just, it's always a, there's always something new to be gleaned. So people talk about the jam and the hang at the jam. Are you familiar with that concept? The jam and then the hang at the jam. Just like the hanging around aspect, the hang at the like the concert or the festival, you know, just like basically hanging out with yeah. people. So the last time we saw each other was at the Freshgrass Festival in September and we were like stage side. Sarah Jaros was playing and this was the hang that was going on. It was pretty epic. It was yourself, Noam Pakelny, Watch House. Sean and Sarah Watkins, and there were also um, some other musicians there. Watch House, Watch House was not there that day. They were there. No, they weren't. They didn't get there till the next day. They, they, I love that you know that. I know that because they're they're very good friends of mine, and I was texting with her, and I didn't see they were getting there on Sunday, and we had already left. Okay, so they weren't there, but there were other musicians who I didn't recognize. But if you told me their names, I would know them. So that like, what do you get from like being around that type of energy at a festival? when like the hang is so is as epic as like the jam oh gosh well i mean like you're now you're bringing back because you mentioned watch house it was a similar vibe at telluride where watch house watch house was there and after their set there was this incredible hang backstage in their dressing room um and and it was just so special just to yeah to well to have just watched them play and it was similar to fresh grass just to get to see Jiro's on stage and also see Sarah Watkins who I've you know, only seen once in the last year and a half who's one of my you know greatest friends of all time um Noam who I barely seen Steep Canyon Ragers were all there um that that was maybe like that, that was the other band that I remember seeing backstage that day at um at fresh grass they're like just this really really special just energy of, of coming up in a, as a part of a community and you've sort of known these people, whether or not you've known them for 15 years or if they're a new band and you're just meeting them, there's something really special about knowing that you're kind of all in it together, especially kind of post-pandemic or whatever, at this stage of the pandemic where everybody's kind mm-hmm. of had a similar experience over the past couple of years. So we've known each other for a long time. So we met in 2003, um, before, like when we were like little tiny baby children. Um, we were both in our early 20s. And I remember you being like the most energetic, hilarious and fun person as I myself was also like very amped up at the time. Like we've all 
settled down since then, but you still have this like incredible energy, like you're a fast talker and you're still like so quick and so funny in conversation. Where do you think that energy came from? How have you learned to use it to your advantage, maybe especially in your music? Where does it get you into trouble? Oh, wow. Really interesting question. Well, I, I think that I am who I am, right? This is like, I'm almost 39. As I've gotten older, I think you're, I'm, I'm more just aware of the fact that, that when I look, yeah, look, looking back on my, my early twenties or even my teenage years, like I'm just, I'm just still me. I'm still the exact same person. And that, that's been really interesting to sort of watch my daughter, who's almost four, even in, in the, her short, her short life, she was her, the exact same personality when she was six months old and she could crawl. Like you know, she just had the same personality as she does now at age four. And I know that she'll have the same personality when she's 40, because this just feels like this is just how it is, right? This like we're, we just are who we are. Um, I feel like as in, in the last decade, sort of since I've kind of become a little bit more focused on making music a sustainable career, I feel like in my 20s with Crooked Still and Sometimes Why and Sub Rosa and kind of like the scene in the Lizard Lounge, it was just, it was a lot more for me, like there, there was just, there was less at stake. You know, I was just like really into the hang and, and partying and, and like playing music and just kind of getting, just getting fulfilled by all of that. And I, and I was writing and I, but not as much as I, as I could or should have been. And I feel like as I've gotten older, I've kind of been put, tried to harness my energy, as you say, into, in, into something more productive and tried to like kind of create more music and create more, think bigger, think, think more, think about projects that I want to do and bringing, try to bring them to fruition. And I feel like that's, I don't know. It's easy to think about music as like, all right, you just go and play the tour and then you come home and you get ready for the next tour. But there's so much stuff I want to do and so much music I want to make and uh, trying to make time and space for it. And, and also then like find things to, to give me creative energy as well. I think like making time for mm. running, like I, I get a ton of like energy out and in from like running outside. I just like, people always ask me, if I listen to music when I run and I don't, I just like run and think and try to like come up with song ideas and ideas about the world. And, but also I'm trying to like get energy out because yes, I do have a lot of energy in general. And, um, and I want to, I want to put that to something, you know, I want to like think about the next thing. Like just now on my run, I was, went for like a five mile run around all these lakes and I'm going to the studio tomorrow and I'm, you know, working on just more new music. And I'm just sort of thinking about, okay, what do I want to spend? How do I want to spend these four hours at the studio tomorrow? And what, little ideas can I, can I take and can I go from that I'm going to get on this in this 45 minutes of time, you know? When you run, what is your pace per mile? Oh, I mean like not like for me eight or eight or nine minutes, like eight, eight, probably eight and a half minutes. I mean, jogging. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm like a 14 minute mile. Maybe I'm <laughs> on tw- I, that's a joke. I'm like a 12 minute mile. I, I can't run very fast, but I can run for a long time. Um, Okay, so another thing we were talking about, we talked for like a minute at Fresh Grass um, about drinking. Like I stopped in July for a dry month and have just like kept going. And again, like we're about the same age. And I wonder if this is like something that's like on people who are about to become middle aged, like if it's on everyone's mind. Wait, are you 39 or are you 38 or 37? I'm 39. Okay. You're also 82, right? We're the exact same year. 82. Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'd love to hear more about your experience and relationship to like drinking, like how it's evolved, how you're feeling about it now, like what alcohol was like growing up around you. Yeah, I feel like I have like a pretty, 
I, I don't, I don't have an addictive personality per se. Like I, I, I love to drink alcohol, like casually. Um, I really enjoy mm -hmm. a nice hoppy beer or a cocktail. Uh, I wouldn't say like, yeah, in my thirties, I'm not like a big drinker, but I really, I do enjoy alcohol and therefore like, I don't see it as because I, I don't, I don't overdo it. So therefore I don't really see many negatives from it. I have noticed though, that during the pandemic, like we all just got, I just got into more like habitual drinking, which I, I don't think I, being on tour, like it's easy to not drink at all. If you're, if I'm on a solo tour or if I'm on a tour where I'm doing merch and I'm driving, like, I just don't really drink. I might have like half a beer when I get to the hotel before bed, if that just started to like try to signify the end of the night. But that's kind of like my touring experience or even like on I'm with her tours, you know, I'm a definitely like, I'm an, I don't drink ever before shows. Like I'm a, I'm a drink at the end of the night kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas in my twenties, <laughs> not that way. Like, like, I mean, <laughs> but now I just, I just, I just feel like I'm just take it more seriously. Like I take what I'm doing more seriously. So on mm -hmm. the road, you know, if, if I don't have to drive after a gig or settle up merch or do anything like that, I will, I will enjoy like cracking a beer in the green room, but there's not like time for the long epic thing. Mm. And also like I get up early and I want to go for a run and, but, but, but that being said, right. like I do, I enjoy drinking, I enjoy drinking coffee. It's, I feel like the same, I feel like the same way about coffee and alcohol, which is that when I was pregnant, like it was very easy to not do either. And if I go for a week, like I've done multiple times in the pandemic, I've not just taken a week off from drinking or taking a week off from that's live, never taken a week off from coffee. That would be harder, <laughs> harder for me, but, um, but drinking, yeah, I just, I just, I just like to make it special. Now it's like at the end of the night, mm. after a show, I celebrate like on the weekend. I love if I'm, if I'm home and nobody else is home with me, like I don't really drink during the week, but then if I meet up with somebody on a Friday night, I really enjoy like a nice mm -hmm. hoppy IPA or a cocktail. Yeah. That's, that's my relationship with it. It's nice to hear, like, it sounds like a good relationship. Like I listen to this audio book called quit like a woman. And this lady like hates alcohol and thinks nobody should drink it ever and that it's poison and that but why like why why I just feel like anything I just for me it's like everything in moderation that's like and I feel like that's kind of how I how I want like my my child to be it's like I don't last night was Halloween like why should she not have a couple pieces of candy like she never eats candy right. or even like with tv right. she doesn't ever watch tv but like on the weekends, if she, she watches one movie every weekend and sometimes she doesn't even watch it because you don't have time or doing something else. But it's like, yeah, I feel like she has a very healthy association with like the screen or the mm. I, I don't know. I just I don't it's like nothing is nothing is poison except for a poison. Like what, why? What makes alcohol worse than right. anything else? Well, it sounds like you have like a very good um, definition and relationship of moderation. Yeah. But doesn't everybody? Isn't that what moderation means? Yeah. But some people like don't you know it's like there's like I guess like saying like you you're opening to the answer was that you don't have an addictive personality which I think is a key yeah I guess it's my, my siblings have this joke with me where they um like at the holidays I like to keep everybody to a two drink min max I call it a minimum maximum <laughs> which is that if you're if we're like out for the night if you have less than two drinks like you're not partying but if you have more then <laughs> you're cut off <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's like, like a, yeah so, so that, I guess that's that's kind of that's kind of how how I how I think of it how how has it been for you like do you do you feel do you will you go back to it or do you think it's poison for know. you no well I mean I think it's definitely feels uh like it feels if I had a drink like tonight I would feel it tomorrow you know and I think it's just a really good idea for me to just like keep on taking a break oh yeah but at this point 
I'm still thinking in terms of like, oh, I'll probably go back to it at some point. But in the meantime, you know, I'm like getting in touch with my feelings and really feeling everything like for better or worse. Right. You know, it took like actually it took like two months for that kind of like to hit me that like alcohol is really like dulling my senses and not that like I'm a crazy drinker or anything but I think the pandemic definitely amped it up were were you a wine drinker or like a spirits drinker wine because I feel like wine like because I'm just not really a wine drinker I think that if I were a wine drinker it would be I just feel like it's harder to like only have because you're it's like not measured you're like pouring it out of a bottle into a glass I don't know it's like it's it's so easy to like have a can of beer and be like, this is my treat. It's like having like a cookie or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you open it and yeah. you drink it and then you put it in the recycling and you're like, done. I don't know. I think wine is, wine is like, just feels more like gray area or something. Danger Island. Yeah. We call that Danger Island. Yeah. It's, um, I don't mean to sound self-righteous or, or in any way. Um, and I know that for some people it is, it is totally poison. I think that for, for me, this is also sort of like, how I feel about food or, or anything. Just like, I don't know. I just don't, I don't really like to have like really strict rules for myself about anything, mm-hmm. other, anything other than like, I love to exercise every day because I feel like that's really good for me. If I don't, then I'm like, okay, that was a bummer, but it's not that big of a deal. So I want to talk about your singing. So you for a long time mainly consider yourself a singer, although now I hear that you will call yourself a guitar player as well. <laughs> and you do play the piano. But it's like always been about your voice. Like you went to school for that. It's your craft. It's your instrument. What has been your journey with singing? Like when did you realize your voice was special? How have you cared for it? Do you ever not like it? Okay, well, do I ever not like it? I'll start there. I mean, there are times where I wish I could do more things with it. But it's um, like it's just kind of back to what we were just talking about. It's like to me, it's counterproductive to like not like something that you can't change. Like it's just there's just no point in wasting your time thinking about that. So yeah. you're so practical. I love it. <laughs> I mean, like there's just I just don't have time to think about that kind of stuff. Um, I how do I care for it? I mean, my voice. I always knew that I wanted to be a singer. Like really, if you look at, you know, my journal, my Kirsten American Girls doll, Girl Dolls journal, like I had that, you know, whatever from, you remember Kirsten and Samantha and Molly? Oh yeah. With the braids. Yeah. Kirsten but, had little like braids. Like Princess Leia yeah, braids. <laughs> exactly. Um, the Swedish immigrant. Totally. She, I had a little journal and I wrote in it, you know, it says, what do you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I'm Aoife, I'm six years old and I want to be a, a doctor or a singer. And I, I don't, I was never going to be a doctor. So that, that. That was not realistic for me. In elementary school, I remember auditioning for All City Chorus in Newton, Mass, and I didn't get in, but I didn't let that get me down. <laughs> I uh, kept on singing and, you know, was involved in choirs and plays and everything in, in middle school and high school. And So as like a young, a young kid, you were like, I really like my voice. I'm going to keep going. It wasn't like I really, I don't even know if like I liked my voice. I mean, when I listen back to even recordings of myself from like five years ago, I don't like my voice. Like, I just think it's getting better. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't remember, gosh, if I heard a recording of myself singing from high school, I would just, I mean, I just would cringe because it's just, I just can see all the things I'm doing wrong. And yeah, yeah, it's just not. But still like at that, at that point, you were like, I like to do this. It makes me feel good. I'm good at it. Yeah, I think I felt like I was good. I think I felt like I had a good ear. I feel like that's something that I've always been confident in is my ability to hear music in a certain way and find a harmony and sing harmony. Like those, those are the kind of things that always came really easily to me. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that's because I had that, it was sort of easier to go down the path of like towards becoming a professional musician. Did you talk about how you care about care? Oh, for how your I care voice? for it. Well, that kind of ties back into the previous conversation of like, you know, how I lived in my 20s versus my 30s. I feel like in my 20s, I would get hoarse a lot more often. Um, and I can just see a direct correlation to like drinking too much or partying too much or not sleeping enough or going out after shows and talking too loud. And that just doesn't really happen to me at all anymore. It's not something that I, I worry about too much because I just. I'm just not like, I just would never go to a loud bar in the middle of a tour, having nothing to do with COVID or drinking. I just would never go talk loud if I had a show the next day. You know, I just like wouldn't do that. Yeah. Whereas when I was younger, I, I would do that. Your phrasing is also, has always been like so cool and super interesting. Um, you do this thing sometimes where you like sing really fast, monotone, and then you get a bunch of words in like Lucky Star on the new album is a good example of that, which is actually pretty vocally insane. Um, that song. But can you speak to your phrasing, like what influences your unconventional approach? Yeah, I think that what influences it, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to pinpoint exactly what influences it. I mean, there's so many singers that, that are so such great phrasers, but also instrumentalists. I feel like a lot of my phrasing ideas kind of came from studying like at NEC and kind of being exposed to saxophone players. And I don't know, just, just like how, like how to even like Getz Gilberto, like that great album with Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto with that has Girl from Ipanema on it. Like the way that those, that, that, you know, he would sing them, Joao Gilberto would sing the songs and then Stan Getz would play the melodies, but, and just, but just sort of totally improvise on the melodies. I feel like that record kind of like influenced how I think about phrasing in a really huge way. And then people mm. like, I mean, Paul Simon's phrasing is so epic. Joni Mitchell's phrasing. Um, learning Coyote. I learned the Joni Mitchell song Coyote for a live from here in um, late 2019. And just kind of, yeah, just sing, like internalizing that phrasing, I feel like, and then <laughs> learning the song and then being able to sort of do, put my own spin on it was, was a really cool exercise. Uh, but yeah, I just love, I don't like being locked into a melody. I mean, like I, I love, I love melodies and I love writing melodies and I love learning melodies. But then when I'm performing, I love to use the melody as a jumping off point to it's just like as another way of expressing what mm. I'm feeling at the moment. It's like so memorable and so enjoyable as a listener. Gosh, thank you. Keep on being weird, Eva. <laughs> <laughs> um, your first experience of an all-female outfit, at least I think I could be wrong, was the mid-2000s with Sometimes Why, Kristen Andreessen and Ruth Miranda and yourself. And you've gone on to play with I'm With Her, with Sarah Watkins and Jerose. Um, can you talk about the differences you have experienced playing with all male ensembles and then with all women bands? And what has been your experience with like finding other women to jam with when you were starting out and what those relationships have meant for your musicality? Yeah, I mean, like this is a this is an interesting topic because I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a musician and I, I don't like my experience has, has thankfully, I think been very different than many other women's experience in the music industry, feeling like there weren't enough women or they didn't feel supported or it was a man's world. And yes, it certainly is a man's world, but I've never felt that from the other musicians. I felt that more from promoters or from, you know, just like from people outside of the actual musical sphere of things. Like when I mm, like was, the connectors. 
Yeah, I mean, it, like exactly the people, the people who were kind of the, the gatekeepers, or who were going to hire you for a mm-hmm. gig, or, or put together a set at a festival. But I came up also at a time where there were a lot of women playing playing music. You know, the Mammals were playing. They had two. The original Mammals had two women. Um, the Ducks had two women. Uncle Earl was all women. Like there were just so many bands coming up right when Crooked Sill was coming up that they're like, it it did it just felt like there were just a tons of tons of women around. The, the Biscuit Burners, like this old band from North Carolina with. Um, Shannon Whitworth and Mary Lucy was like two girls and two guys. I just, it just didn't like, it wasn't something, it wasn't like a conscious thing that, that, that I literally ever thought about. Hmm. Um, my first professional gig was with the Wayfaring Strangers and there were three, three women singers and, and male instrumentalists. And, and I don't see that as, you know, I, I've seen people say like, well, if, if the woman, is, if the only woman in the band is the singer, then that's bad. And I'm just like, I, I just don't, that's like not how I feel. I feel like people, hmm. there should be more women playing music, but it's like, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not not here to tear down the the bands that have a female singer, and then there's that's like there's a great tradition of that in Irish music, like Sullis, um, Danu. There's so many great, and I feel like a singer is a musician, and 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 you shouldn't mm. be thought less of because you were an excellent singer and you don't have you know instrumental chops necessarily. And I, I I don't subscribe to that. This question kind of ties into that. So you're a mid career artist, and something cool that's happened recently is that Issa Burke of Lula Wiles joined your band as guitarist and she's someone who has looked up to you and has been mentored by you for years so it's kind of like come full circle how do you feel about your role as like the adult in your scene now I I mean I I love that there are all these young musicians that I've known for for so many years um and and played with and and I really respect them as musicians and I don't know. It's, it's funny. I was actually talking to Isa about this recently and about how I've known Isa. I mean, I first, my, I first played music with Isa's dad when I was 18 at my freshman year of college. Um, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. There was this, this accordion player named Jeremiah McLean, who's a Vermont musician and his recital, he was like an, uh, you know, he, he was getting his master's or something at, at, at the school and he did a recital and David Surrett played and I played and I was 18 and David Surrett was I don't know, I guess probably like 30 or five or something. He's, he's, he's also quite young. I feel like he's in his fifties. Issa's dad. And I met Issa. She must, I mean, she must, she was obviously like a real child at that point. She was probably like eight or nine. I didn't meet her then. I met her for the first time, maybe when she was like, like a young teenager. And, um, she sang with me on stage at Henry Fest in 2008, which was so sweet. And, uh, and, but I've just sort of watched her kind of come up and, and really been impressed with all of the music that she's made. She's just, she's such a great musician and it was a real natural choice for somebody to play guitar and sing. I, I really wanted a, a female backup vocalist for this record because there's a lot of mm. female vocals on it and, um, and a guitar player and it's somebody like who you, you get yeah. more bang for your buck. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm really <laughs> excited to like actually go on tour because, you know, we've only done four shows so far. So Including fresh grass, which Including I saw. Including fresh grass, exactly. It was very exciting. Actually, to see. only, it just only feels three like, shows, yeah. Oh, okay. It just feels like really, uh, really big, like really cool that East is in your band now. Um, how has it been for you to bring like a female lead guitarist on the road with you? Even, I mean, you've only done three shows, but like to lift someone up that you mentored, who's also a young woman coming up behind you. I mean, I think it feels great when I mean, we really just did the three shows. You'd have to ask me like after we actually go on tour. Um, okay. But, we'll but again, again. I, I, again, I feel like this is just kind of ties back into the, the previous comment, which is like, I don't want to be like, it's all about the music, man. But like, I, I, for me, it kind of is, it's like, I'm, I'm less thinking about like the big picture. I mean, this is for better or for worse, but for me as a musician, mm. 
like I'm not up on stage thinking about how like I, I don't know I just like I'm not thinking about like the fact that mm. like it's it's cool it's like a fleeting thought and it's incredible but it's like that's not what I'm focused on I'm focused on like making mm-hmm. music and making great music making great music with Isa with Isa and Ethan and Robin like and and I don't want it to be like a performative thing it's it's like it has to like to me every, like and this is with all of this stuff and I feel like I've talked about this a lot with I'm with her is like there's not really a there's no point to do something because it's all women or all this or all that. Like, I, I don't think that there is a point, there's a place for that in music. I feel like in music and art in general, like the art is the most important thing. And the things that come, the things that can support the art are, mm-hmm. are crucial, but that's, they're not, to, for me, they're not the, the art is the most important thing. I hope that at some point you do get a chance to like step back and realize like how fucking awesome having Issa in your band is because yeah like what you're saying I totally agree with but like this is a patriarchal society that we live in there's a lot of fucking boundaries that we have to break through in order to to put women and put black people and put queer people on stage and I like commend you for for doing that you know it's cool thank you no I mean I'm really excited about it and I feel like you know, but I, I just don't want, I don't want like, I don't want anybody to think that I hired Issa for my band because of, you know what I mean? It's like, that's the thing of like, right. Like, oh, like she was uh, like, I'm, well, that sounds like was, the patriarchy. Yeah. yeah well, not you know? really. It sounds like the virtue signaling that's all over the internet. Like, I, I feel like that's like, mm, okay. I, I feel like actually that's like, that's less of the patriarchy and more like whatever it's, it's more just, yeah. I feel like there are people who, who are, that's how they think. And that's how they, they want. It's like, they do something because they want to be perceived as doing it a certain way and they want to be tapped to pat it on the shoulder for it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, totally. That's a good point. It, that, that's like, that's the, um, that's like the, uh, reaction to the patriarchy, which is like a whole, it's just, we're living in the age of reactionary everything, right? It's like everything is just right. these extreme right. reactions. And I think we're seeing that so much in the pandemic with the politicization of everything. It's just so reactionary. Okay, let's talk about this record, Age of Apathy. Um, you were working with Joe Henry during the pandemic remotely. How did that logistically work? Like you were in the studio in Florida and he, was he like zooming in and listening to all the sessions? He zoomed in a couple times. How it worked was I contacted him in early January of last year. Um, and I said, I'm, you know, I'm starting to work on this record. I've recorded a couple songs, like two. No, I think I only recorded one song at that point. Like I made a demo of something. And I said, I'm, I, I'm starting this record. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to finish it here. At this point, it was like clear that the pandemic was not over, like last January. You know, I think we, we, it was just so hard to know how long we were going to be not touring and not, not doing stuff. Um, I reached out to him and I asked if he wanted to hear some of these demos I was working on and if he was interested in, in producing a record vir- virtually. Basically, you know, mm-hmm. I would send him stuff. He could zoom in, give me feedback, yada, yada. And we we're, we're good friends. We had never worked together before in this way, or really in any way. We had done a couple of shows together, and that's it. And he was really um, keen on the idea. And I sent him a couple of these first demos, and he was he was really excited. And and then kind of once that was in place, everything just kind of started to flow out of me. Like I was just writing so much, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, that was cool. It was really cool. It was bizarre. I've never had like I really have never had an experience like that before. Um, kind of was yeah, wrote a lot of music in this exact little room that I'm in right now. 
Cute. Um, but we would go, I would be in here writing during the day or writing at night, and then I would go to the studio, you know, a couple, maybe three or four days a week and, and spend the mornings there. I would, and, and then I would leave at, you know, 2.15 and pick up my kid at school. And um, it was great. So I was making these, these demos of guitar, piano, electric guitar, vocals. And I, I thought they were demos. I would, like, send them to Joe and with the copy of the lyrics. And then sometimes I would make some edits and go in and, like, fix them the next day. And as he was kind of listening to them, I was, I was imagining we were going to like start from scratch and redo recut everything, you know, once we were sort of like had everything done. Mm -hmm. But after I had 13 or 14 songs, he was like, I think that we should use those demo tracks as the basic tracks for the record. Like, you know, those, those should be like the bones of the record. And I went and like redid vocals and I, I fixed some stuff and like kind of made final vocals of stuff, but we sent them out first to the drummer and then to the bass player and then kind of started layering all this stuff over. And Joe had all these ideas and people and colors that he thought that he thought would work. And it was a really cool mm. process. And it took, it took a long time, but it was a really cool process. So I read that you found the remote element of the process like very freeing, you know, like having distance. Um, somebody wrote uh, remote collaborations, particularly with bassist David Pilch and drummer Jay Belarus, introduced unexpected rhythms and textures into the architecture of the songs, allowing you to bend your sound into more like expansive shapes. Can you expand on like what that means a little bit? Yeah, I think what that means is that usually when you make a record, you make the tracks and then you have an idea of like what the drum part's going to be and you're, or you do it with a drummer or you make up, you get the song together and like you're playing it and you're like, Oh, can you try, uh, you know, actually halftime in this chorus or, you know, how about like more symbols in this part? Like, I feel like, like usually the person who's the songwriter will have more input into like what the drum part for a song is going to be or a bass part for that matter. But the cool thing about Joe hiring first Jay and then David Pilch was that I, I like we would send them the songs and they would send Joe some ideas. I was just kind of su- always surprised when I got the stuff back. It was like, oh, that's how that's how they heard it. And sometimes it would take me a second to be like, that's totally not how I imagined it. But then it, every single time I was like, but this is fucking awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was totally not what I necessarily had heard in my head. But like these parts were just it was like, that's how the song always was going to go. I just didn't know it, especially with the bass parts. Cause I feel like I didn't have, I didn't tour with bass on my last record. I had bass on the record, but I didn't tour with the bass player. And I've always kind of, I've always sort of had this idea that like bass, I don't know, sometimes like bass lines just really like square and make the song feel really heavy and like we weigh it down. David Pilch is like just the opposite kind of bass player. He would, he was sending back these super melodic, like bizarre bass lines that like every track, every time I would hear a track from him, I'd be like, that's so weird. I'm really not sure that was the right approach. But then I would listen to it like twice. And then I would be like, oh, that's, that's, he just, he was inside of my head. He must've been inside of my head when I wrote the song and that's the baseline of the song. There's no oh way. My God. Yeah. Like really, really <laughs> wild, um, just way of, of going, going about it. So I, I love so much. And I, and I remember like getting an email from Jay halfway through being like, I'm having so much fun working on this stuff. And I was texting with David Pilch. I've still never met David Pilch. I've met Jay Bellarose and worked with him, but I can't wait to meet those guys and like play with them because I feel like we, yeah, it just, it just was so musical in a way that, that I, I never have never made music before. It's like, it was so collaborative, mm. but in this way that was really a different type of collaboration that I'd ever done before. I went to, um, over the Rhine's festival, uh, nowhere else fest. Um, in September, and Jay Belarus was there with Joe Henry, 
Yeah, they're, that they're like best friends. I was with Peter Mulvey was also playing, and uh, I was talking to Peter. I'm like, Jay Belarus is the most famous person here, and I like walked by him, like looking at him, but I was like wait like I was like I can't go up to him because I don't have anything to say to him other than like you're the most famous person here bye (laughs) (laughs) that would have been a good one-liner I feel like okay maybe I'll save it for next time save it for next time but yeah his drumming is just exquisite and it's so good adds such uh layers and depth to the songs um on the new album um so like the theme of age of apathy Uh, In your kind of press release bio about the album, one of the first lines is, as tragedy after tragedy threatens to render us numb to the human cost of it all, Age of Apathy finds O'Donovan endeavoring to carve out a joyous and purposeful existence. Yeah. Um, What's been your experience with numbing and apathy and how do you combat it? When do you think maybe it's okay? I think that this is something that I, I feel like I'm still like it really is tragedy after tragedy, and also just just like, thing after thing. Even like this week with Facebook and the metaverse, and just all, all of this this stuff. And when I think back on and, I, and I, this is also in the press release, but when I started to see the, the similarity between 9/11, 2001, and then like this kind of full 20 year cycle with right now, and how mm-hmm. like just how that those two decades have sort of shaped well, just how, like what my experience was in those two decades. And I wonder if you feel the exact same way, because I literally feel like September 11th was like day one of being an adult for me. Like just yep. like that was it. We were sophomores in college and it mm-hmm. was like, it just was childhood was over. Like the world would never be the same again. And, and I remember being so scared that the world would never be the same again. Like that was the sort of the thing that kept on scaring me. It was like, nothing's ever going to be the same. And just this mm. sort of wanting things to be the same and wanting. And I feel like the change that's ensued over the last 20 years and like how the world has evolved. And, and of course, every generation kind of goes through their own version of this. But I feel like for, for our generation, the millennial, these like us older millennials, and I feel like we're, it's just, it just feels like so immense. And, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of that kind of has to, has to do with like coming of age in this sort of digital era and, and kind of like remem- really remembering a time where like, we're just, things were just very different, like in our, in our early, the early years of our adulthood, as opposed to like the late years of our adulthood and, mm-hmm. or as we, as we enter middle age, right? Like, it's just like, that's just it. Those between 20 and 40, it's like, that was nine eleven to the fucking pandemic. And, um, and I feel like that's just kind of like what this record is basically about. It's sort of about like the, the emotional sort of cycle of coming to terms with all that, like the roller coaster of that and, and, and like losing inspiration, finding inspiration, losing, you know, losing love, finding love, letting go, just like letting go of, of stuff and like opening up to whatever is next, I think is kind of how I would put it. Mm, yeah, like letting go your expectations of what you think life is going to be. Exactly, like. but that, that, and that that can also be a metaphor for letting go of an old relationship or letting go of like a, a previous way of doing things or whatever it is. It just it just is a lot a lot of that for me. Letting go how you make money as a musician every yeah. three years it's different. Exactly, you know, especially exactly. I would say in these last twenty years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Exactly. And and just I don't know. So I feel like when I was writing these songs and like recording them and, and now like talking about them, it just, it's almost like there's more overlap than, 
than I even thought. Like, I mean, like I knew I was kind of writing on a loose theme, but I feel like that how it kind of coalesced in in the end to mm-hmm. make the whole record with like Sister Starling starting it and then Passengers ending it and just sort of like really sort of seeing. I mean, similarly to like how my last record ended with Jupiter, with sort of thinking of that as like a jumping off point for like the sort of post-apocalyptic landscape. I don't know if you know, if you've heard my last record, but like that last song mm-hmm. is is kind of like this moment that I feel like that to me is almost like it's like the prequel to this record. Yeah, that's cool. It's interesting to think about like the more you will talk about this album and the more you'll talk about these songs in these types of interviews, the more you'll learn about them. Is that Oh, for sure. Oh, definitely. A hundred percent. And even just like, just thinking about it, like just sending the lyrics around and like looking through the lyrics and being like, oh wow, like there there are so many connections between these lyrics Mm -hmm. that I don't even, that I think were just sort of accidental almost. Mm. Um, I did want to ask you about the song Town of Mercy. That's a poem that Joe Henry sent you, which you like effortly put music to. And it sounds like kind of a cosmic experience and it's not, it and also like during this interview it's occurred to me that like maybe you don't you don't like really love dig, digging into like cosmic and supernatural experiences but is it because I said is it because you said how does it make you feel and I was like what <laughs> yeah you're like shut up um, listen to the album and leave me alone <laughs> no 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 Joe that that actually was pretty cosmic because he he sent me that song. I mean, it wasn't really even like a poem. I feel like he think he, as a songwriter, he like thinks of it as a song without word, without music yet, the words to a song. And he sent it to me. And I just remember like taking out my guitar it was actually late at night and it was winter. And of course I'm in Florida. So it's like not really winter here, but it's still when we in Florida get like below 80 degrees, it's everybody's wearing North faces and hats. And like, like this morning, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm really not joking. Like, right. Like it's, it's 74 degrees right now. And I was just on a run and like people are literally out for walks with like jackets and hats on in the seventies. So in February, when Joe Henry sent me this music, I mean, like you can imagine it was like people in ski parkas in 71 degree weather in here. And so me kind of trying to like access the new England kind of vibes he he was writing in Maine and he said he wrote this song like before the sun came up and, and just sort of having this really vivid picture in my head. It's almost like when I, when I read those words of Town of Mercy, I think it's like, it just, it, it reminds me of like a David Lynch movie or something. It just, it just feels like it's a, it's like a TV show. It's a novel. It's like a mini, it's a whole story. Like everything is there. And I kind of messed around on the guitar. And when I went into the studio in the morning, I just sat at the piano and like really just did two takes like of piano and vocal. And I was like, I think this is, I feel like this is done. <laughs> and I um and then I put that like, that's weird, unusual it's very very unusual like I I, I we might have cha- then like gone back and like edited one word or something um mm. but it was it was really it was really cool and then I sent that to him and I'm like I have no mm. idea if this is the vibe you wanted um or not but he he was I don't even know how I like I found those chords that was what was just so weird about it was because every time I've like played it live I've actually I've never played it in the show yet not yet um, but I did it at AMAs in the piano and just even like trying to like find where those chords are on the guitar, or on the piano. I'm like, wait, well, how did I like, how did I come up with those? I don't even know. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Orlando, you moved there last fall. Your husband is the artistic director and conductor for a few symphonies there. Just one. Um, just one. Just one. Okay. How do you like it? And what do you want people to know about Orlando and why 
it's a cool place. Well, so he had this, he's had this job here since 2015. And, and when that started, I've, I've sort of been like the unofficial ambassador for Orlando was a very cool place, but it, that's definitely <laughs> gone up since, um, since we've been down here full time for the last year. It's just, it's just incredible. I mean, so I don't, I don't want the secret to get out because what's so cool about it is that it's just like one of these very progressive, hip, small cities, the way that Nashville or Austin or, you know, it's just a really cool city. Like there's, it's, I live in a hundred year old house on a brick lined street and I can walk everywhere and there's incredible hipster coffee shop right around the corner and all these great restaurants and so much great culture. I saw an amazing, um, repertory theater production of Frog and Toad, the musical last weekend. Like, you know, then later that night I saw Eric conduct the Dvorak New World Symphony with the orchestra. Like there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. There's a beautiful art museum. There's a great Kids Science Center. It's called the Orlando Science Center. There, there's just like high quality stuff here and really cool like-minded people. It's sort of like a little blue dot in the middle of Florida. And and also the, the main thing I feel like people don't know about Florida is how much nature there is in Florida. People mm. think that Florida is just strip malls. And like, I mean, it's fine if you don't want to believe it, but Florida is like full of insane parks, kayaking, running, like just gorgeous trails and just the outdoors. Mm. It's like, it's, it's a Florida. The funny thing about Florida is everybody loves to hate Florida. And of course we have a big buffoon in charge here. Um, but that buffoon is at odds with a lot of the local leaders. The local leaders in, in Orange County are incredible. Um, Jerry Demings is the mayor of the county. He's the husband of Val Demings, who is one of uh, Biden's front runners for VP. The mayor of Orlando, Mayor Buddy Dyer, is just a great music fan, music lover, comes to my shows. Like it's just it's That's just so very cool. It's just very cool. It's it's a really cool place. Nice. And do you think you'll be down there for a while? Uh, well, it just it's hard. It's hard to say. We still have our you know deep ties in New York City, um, of course, in Brooklyn, yeah. and um, and Eric has a new job in Norfolk, Virginia, as well. So we're sort of it's all up in the air right now. But we're we're really loving being here right now. And my kid goes to an amazing Montessori school, and yeah, it's just we like like I said, everything's outside. Just we go swimming, go kayaking, go running. <laughs> it's great. All right, I'll be right there. Yeah. Uh, Let's do the lightning round before you go. Just Great. a bunch of fun questions. You ready to do it? Ready. Here uh, here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, the first song I learned on the guitar is probably Dimming of the Day by Richard and Linda Thompson. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, what is your karaoke song? I'm so bad at karaoke. One time I did I Don't Know Why by Nora Jones in a bar in Biarritz in France, and my cousin laughed so hard she beat her pants. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs, I guess. I'm not a pet person. <laughs> what is your coffee order? Black, black coffee. First celebrity crush? <laughs> Gilbert from Anne of Green Gables. Gilbert Blythe. <laughs> I mean, really, that's like the first thing that pops into my mind. That's great. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? I, I, I don't know. My parents? <laughs> that counts. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? Oh my gosh. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of what that would have. What it would have been. I don't remember exactly. I, I remember like going to HMV, but I remember getting like a cassette tape of like Casey and JoJo. Do you remember that duo? They were like an R&B duo. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look it up. I bet. I bet if I knew there. It might have not. Might have not been the, the the first, but it was probably it was around then. Oh wow. Um, okay. This is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The most beautiful place I've ever visited. So I mean, so many places. <laughs> Maybe New Zealand. Nice, Ifa. Thank you so much for talking today. This has been so good. 
Thank you, Cindy. I feel like we could just keep talking for another hour. I know, for real. Um, Congratulations on the new album. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much. Today's episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser, our music composed by Alex Stanton. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you found this podcast or at our website, basicfolk.com. That's also where you can support us and gain access to Backstage, which is members-only exclusive content. Check out the website, follow us on social media, keep on listening, and keep on shining. Okay, thanks so much. Bye!